0: Well, sometimes it's it's uh, interesting, I think, for the church to get an inside look into the heart of their pastor. I want to share something with you. Some of you may know this, but I I do this each time I preach, whether it's here or any place else. I open to the front of my Bible and I look at the words that were inscribed there. um, Boy, eight or nine years ago by one of my heroes and mentors, Dr. Stephen Lawson, And he wrote in my Bible, now is the time for the strongest men to preach the strongest message in the context of the strongest ministry. And as I gazed on those words this morning, uh, I was reminded that uh, I need those words. I need the prayers of God's people, uh, especially in these days and especially on this day for this very, very important message. If you're a guest with us this morning, we are really in the middle of a series that we have entitled Always Reforming the Marks of a Faithful Church. And over the last several weeks, we have focused our attention on what we know are the five solas of the Reformation. So we have learned that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, on the Word alone. That's the first four. Sola Grazia, Sola Fide, Sola Christos, Sola Scriptura. We come to the fifth and final Sola, and it struck me as, as Jason and the worship team was leading us that we have really reached the, the very tippy top of Mount Everest this morning because we are about to enter uh, a time where we will learn about Soli Deo Gloria. And that is the title of the message. Soli Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory. One writer says it like this. He says that Soli Deo Gloria is the glue that holds the solas together. I want to to do some different things this morning. This will be a little bit of a different approach. I'm going to include a longer introduction. We are not going to exposit a a specific passage of Scripture like we do week in and week out. Rather, I want you to see the the tone and the tenor of the glory of God as it emerges in Scripture. And so, as a part of that introductory uh, section, I want to help you define the glory of God. We need to define the glory of God if we're going to navigate our way forward into this very, very important subject we begin in the Old Testament with the word kabod. It's the Hebrew word that is translated as glory. It's a word that means heavy. It's a, mer- a word that means weighty. It's a word that implies honor or, or splendor or reverence. Dr. Wayne Grudem says this. He says, The glory of God is not exactly an attribute of his being, but rather describes the unmatched honor that should be given to God by everything in the universe. He goes on to say, in another sense, God's glory means the bright light that surrounds God's presence. And so since this word kabod, the Hebrew word kabod, translated glory, means to be heavy, it conveys the idea that the one possessing the glory, and we all know who that one is, the one possessing the glory is overflowing with riches. The one possessing the glory is, is filled with power. The one who possesses the, the kabod has a, a preeminent position. And of course, the one who possesses this kabod, this glory, is none other than the living God. Shift your attention now to the pages of the New Testament. In the New Testament, we are confronted with the little word doxa. It's a word that you find throughout the New Testament. It's the word that is typically translated as glory. But it can also be translated as brightness. Think about the living God, the one who is bright, the one who is shining, the one who is, can be expressed by radiance or amazing might. The word doxa implies that God is powerful, that he is worthy of all our praise, that he is worthy of honor, that he is the great God of Israel. And so with the Hebrew word kabod and the Greek words doxa it, at the forefront of our minds, I want to have you turn with me to the book of Isaiah. And by way of introduction, I, I just want to, to do a broad sweep in the book of Isaiah and have you look carefully at the glory of God in this very important book. And I want you to highlight several things with me. And these are passages that you don't necessarily need to turn to at this point. By way of introduction, I just want you to see several things. First, I want you to see that God's glory is related to his majesty, in Isaiah 35 two, we read, It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our Lord. And so you see, this notion of, of glory in the Hebrew scriptures implies that God is also a majestic God. God's glory is related to his majesty. Second, I want you to see that God's glory is a canopy and provides a divine defense. And don't you need a divine defense these days? God's glory is this canopy that provides a divine defense. Isaiah chapter 4, verse 5, Then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion, and over her assemblies a cloud by day. And smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night, for over all the glory there will be a canopy additionally god 's glory is capable of covering the whole earth, and numerous scriptures help us here, but in Isaiah chapter six, that amazing story where Isaiah gets this vision this this vision of the, the pre incarnate Christ. And he hears the angels calling aloud to one another. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his what? The whole earth is filled with his glory. Additionally, I want you to see in Isaiah that God has a passion. He has a passion to reveal his glory. Isaiah 40 verse 5. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. In Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8, we learn this, that God will not give his glory to another. The verse says, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I will give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. And then finally, in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 12, I want you to see that That God expects his people to give glory to him and praise his holy name. Isaiah 42 verse 12 says, Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. Now, as I walk through the pages of Isaiah, I couldn't help but turn my attention to one of the most influential books that I have ever read. I remember reading... I think I read it in one sitting. It's a long book. I read it in Olympia years and years and years ago at one of the Starbucks in Olympia. It's a book by Jonathan Edwards entitled, A Dissertation Concerning the End for Which God Created the World. And I got to thinking, wow. A dissertation concerning the end for which God created the world. Why did God create the world? And while there's numerous pages that fill this absolutely astonishing book, I want to read one sentence that sums it all up. Jonathan Edwards, the greatest American thinker ever, one of the greatest pastors ever, one of the greatest theological minds that has ever landed on the shores of America, said this, the great end of God's works which is so variously expressed in scripture is indeed one capital O capital N capital E. When you see the word one capitalized, that'll make you sit up in your chair. And Edward says this and is most properly and comprehensively called the glory of God. What is the most Beautiful truth in all the world. What is the most amazing reality that we can ever fixate our attention on? It is this subject that we have before us this morning. It is the glory of God. We've taken a moment to define the glory of God. I want to move one step closer and, and have you press in with me and do a brief description of the glory of God. I want you to see, first of all, that God created and chose Israel for a very specific purpose. And I would have you turn with me once again to the book of Isaiah, chapter 43. Look with me, and I think it would be important for you to to gaze upon these verses. Isaiah, chapter 43, verses 6 and 7. And here we will see why God not only created Israel, but why he chose Israel. Verse 6, I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar, and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Jonathan Edwards helps us once again. He says, it is wholly a promise of a future, great and wonderful work of God's power and grace, delivering his people from all misery and making them exceedingly happy. I've italicized those words in my notes. I'm I'm taking liberties with Edwards' words here. I'm emphasizing something because I think he wanted for us, his readers, to emphasize these words in our mind. That God has promised to deliver his people from all misery and making them exceedingly happy. Have you ever heard someone say that it is not important for you to be happy, you are to be holy? I don't know how many times I've heard that. Did you know that to be, to be happy, to be really happy, is to be holy? You see, so there's not this this disparity between these are the happy people and these are the holy people, right? It's the happy, holy people. You see, to be happy is to be holy, to live a life set apart to God. But Edwards continues, he said, And then the end of all, or the sum of God's design, is declared to be God's own glory. God's own glory. And so God created Israel. He chose Israel for his glory. Secondly, God sent the Messiah. God sent the Lord Jesus Christ so that he too would be glorified. And I want you to notice the progression of events that reveal the glory of God. First, we see that God sent the Messiah in Isaiah chapter 42. If you would turn back one page or look to the left, wherever your Bible happens to read. And here we see in Isaiah chapter 42 that the Messiah is referred to as the servant in this context. And we see that God sent the Messiah to be a light to the nations, to open blind eyes and to bring prisoners from the dungeon. Isaiah 42, 6 and 7. I am Yahweh. I have called you in righteousness. I take you by the hand and keep you. I give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison to those who sit in darkness. Catalog that very important truth in your mind as we'll turn back to it, Lord willing, in a moment, So God sent the Messiah to be a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring prisoners out of the dungeon because these prisoners are spiritual slaves. They are dead in their trespasses and sins. And then I want you to see that God sent the Messiah to extend salvation to the very ends of the earth, not just to Israel, but to the Gentiles too. John Piper writes, it is our unspeakable privilege to be caught up with him in the greatest movement in history. The ingathering of the elect from all the tribes and tongues and peoples and nations until the full number of the Gentiles has come in and all of Israel is saved and the Son of Man descends with power and great glory as King of kings and Lord of lords, and the earth is full of the knowledge of His glory. Then the supremacy of Christ will be manifest to all, and He will deliver the kingdom of God the Father, and God will be all in all. Additionally, God sent the Messiah to reveal the glory of God. Now we're going backwards in Isaiah. Turn back with me to Isaiah chapter 40, verse 5. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 5. And while you're turning there, if you can multitask. How many of you can multitask? Uh, go to... Uh, yeah, excellent, Jessica. Go to Isaiah 40 and also go to John chapter 1. And we'll see something very important. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 5. Listen to the word of the Lord. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Someone followed me on Twitter just a few days ago. It's some man I've never heard of, an author. I think he's a pastor. And usually when someone follows me on Twitter, I go to look and see what they're all about, what book have they written, what, what sermon did they preach, right? And this individual who I've never heard of said that the Lord had spoken to him and that he had subsequently written a book and he's going to reveal to the world what God said to him. And so I automatically went to my Twitter account and wrote these words. Do you want to hear from the Lord? Open your Bible and read it. How many of you want to hear from the Lord? Open your Bible and read it. This is how God communicates to his people. And so when you hear the elders, when you hear myself, when you hear your shepherds encouraging you to read Scripture, if you want to hear from the Lord... This is how you will hear it. This is his divinely, sovereign way of speaking to his people. In Isaiah 45, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all the flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now go over to John chapter 1, verse 14, where we read that the logos, the word, became flesh and he dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Do you want to know what God is like? Just look at Jesus. Do you want to know what God acts like? Just look at Jesus. Do you want to know how loving God is? Just look at Jesus. Do you want to learn about the justice of God and the the mercy of God? Just look at the Lord Jesus Christ. God sent the Messiah to reveal the glory of God. One writer says it like this. The exaltation of God's glory is the driving force of the gospel. And grace is the pleasure of God to magnify the worth of God by giving sinners the right and power to delight in God without obscuring the glory of God. Additionally, we see that God's glory is revealed in the redemption of the elect. God's glory is revealed in the redemption of the elect. Would you turn with me briefly to Acts chapter 13? In Acts chapter 13, beginning in verse 46. You will recall back in Isaiah chapter 42, a a section of scripture I encouraged you to to highlight, to catalog briefly in your mind. And we saw that God has declared that Israel would be a light to the nations, that they would be God's appointed means of, of bringing the prisoners out of the dungeon. Now look at Acts 13, beginning in verse 46. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you, since you must you have thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. What's happening here? The Jews had turned away. The Jews were filled with unbelief. And now we read in this passage that, God is turning his attention to the Gentiles. Verse 47, For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Prior to this time, prior to the arrival of the Messiah, you see God's focus, the spotlight of his attention was shining on Israel. And now he shifts his attention. Aren't you glad for this? To the Gentiles, my, my suspicion is 99% of you or more are Gentiles. We may have a few Jewish brothers or sisters with us. And if you're with us, we're so glad you're here. But now we see that God shifts his attention to the Gentiles. And don't miss the gravity of this. Verse 48, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. Hold on, back up. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life, that is elected. And we'll see this as we turn our attention to the book of Ephesians, the first Sunday in November. That God chooses some and passes over others. But in this case, we see that these Gentiles, those who were appointed to eternal life, believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region as God turns his attention to the Gentiles. In Ephesians chapter 1, as I made reference to a moment ago, we read that he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. According to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his Glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Do you understand now why I say that we have reached the very top of Mount Everest? And if you can tell, as we're at 29,045 feet, I think that's close to what the top of Mount Everest is, the summit, is when you get that high, the oxygen is really thin, and sometimes it's hard to take these truths in. It's, this is weighty theological reality. But it's th- theological reality that I, I trust will bless you and encourage you and challenge you. Now, the Westminster Shorter Catechism poses this very important question. It's probably one of the most important questions that my wife and I encouraged our children to memorize, and my suspicion would be it's one of the most important questions that you have wrestled with as well. And it goes like this, what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man, the Westminster divine said, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. John Piper actually takes the answer to and really messes with church history, and I actually like it a great deal. He changes one word. and I'll, I'll, leave, I'll leave it to you to wrestle with this. The chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. You see, these are not two separate things. To enjoy God is to glorify God, to worship Him, to make sure that we understand that He is the the name above all names, that He is the King of kings, that He is the Lord of lords. And so we glorify God by enjoying Him forever. And so now that we are armed with some, some basic knowledge, about the glory of God, I want to challenge you with three very important realities. And before we do that, let me pray. But Father, as we have come to this point in our study, now my heart is uh, frankly overwhelmed with, with joy and with awe and wonder as we contemplate what it means to worship such a glorious God. And so I pray for my dear friends that they would hear the truth from your word, that they would receive it with with hearts that are filled with astonishment, with wonder, and it would lead them to worship. God, I pray that we would stop uh, gazing at ourselves and that we would gaze at you in all your glory, that we would recognize how wonderful you are, how glorious you are, how mighty you are, how majestic you are, and that these great truths would would motivate our, our feet to move into our community to make a difference. That you would mobilize our hands so that we would reach out to people who need to hear the gospel. That you would you would loosen our lips so that we would speak freely of the victory and the joy and the forgiveness that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in these remaining moments, would you... Uh, enable me by your grace to share these very important truths from your word for the building up of your people. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. There's a threefold challenge I want to offer you. And in many respects, these are very basic challenges. But sometimes basic challenges are deep challenges, and I hope you'll receive them as such. The first challenge is this, is to realize God's purpose in creating the world to realize God's purpose in creating the world. I like to refer to this as the the public display of God's glory. That's exactly what God's glory is. It's a a public display of the honor and the, the majesty and the magnificence of God. And I want you to see that God's purpose in creation is simply this, to make known His glory. You see, the living God wants the nations to recognize who He is to worship his holy name. In Numbers chapter 14, verse 21, we read these words, but truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of God. That's a theme that you see running throughout the pages of the Old Testament, that it is God's intended aim, as we learn from Jonathan Edwards, to fill the earth, to flood the earth with the glory of God. In Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 14, we learn this reality as well. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Once again, Jonathan Edwards helps us. He says, the work of God promised to be effected is plainly an accomplishment of the joy, gladness, and happiness, there it is again, of God's people. Instead of their mourning and sorrow. And in the end in which God's design in this work is obtained and summed up is his glory. And he or God expresses the way in which we are to make God our end. And how do we make God our end? In making his glory our end. We need to realize that. God's purpose in creating the world. That is that his glory would be showcased to the nations, to every ethne, to every people group. The second challenge, we not only realize God's purpose in creating the world, but we, we recognize God as the creator who formed you. I refer to this as the powerful calling. And there are several things that we we must observe to it, for this to make sense in our minds. Number one, he calls you by name. He looks out on this sea of people and he sees each one of you by name and he calls you by name. In Jeremiah 30, verse 22, you shall be my people and I will be your God. Additionally, he calls you his possession. He calls you his possession. If you would turn with me to First Peter chapter 2, verse 9, I want to have you look at this verse while I read another passage in Isaiah 43: 20 and 21, which says, "The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches for "I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert to give drink to my chosen people, the people who I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise." Isn't that fascinating? Why did God form Israel for himself so that they would showcase his glory, so that they would proclaim his glory, so that they would live to the glory of God? Then we go to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, where the apostle Peter says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession have you heard it said in america and not just of women but that i have to be honest that's the first thing that popped in my mind but also with men it's my body and i'll do with it as i please would you raise your hand if you've heard something like that recently look again at first peter 2 9 You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for my own possession. This is essentially what God is saying. I own you. I own you. you. You have no right to do whatever you please with your body. And without raising all the thorny social issues, we all know what I'm referring to at this point, is... A man or a woman has no right to do what he or she pleases with his or her body. Why? Because God owns you. He says that his people are a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may, here's the purpose, proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Remember, we were in the dungeon. We were shackled. Our eyes were blinded. Our ears were, were filled with, with so much wax we couldn't hear the, the glory of the gospel. Our mouths were taped shut. We were at the bottom of the ocean. We were in a straitjacket. Ephesians 2 says we were dead in our trespasses and sins, lost and without hope and without God. What about free will? What about free will? Because that person is lost, dead, lost. Hopeless, finished, and the only way that person can be delivered is if their heart is regenerated by the Spirit of God. That's the only way for God to to raise the dead to life, and then that heart becomes brand new. The heart has become transfixed. The eyes are focusing on something altogether beautiful now, and the sinner says, I believe. I believe regeneration precedes Saving faith. And so he calls you his own possession. Number three, he calls you out of darkness, which 1 Peter 2 9 says once again. And then finally, he created you for a purpose. He created you for his glory. And that's exactly what we saw in Isaiah 43, verse 7. He called us by name, he created us for his glory, whom I formed and made. When we're children, we learn this verse. And where's where's Nico? Is Nico Nico? Nico? Nico. Nico. Today, Mr. Strikesma said, How many of you can recite the fruit of the Spirit? Man, Nico. It was like boom. Love, joy, peace, I mean, that was amazing, right? And I, I love that. Do you know sometimes that we become such good memorizers that sometimes we get to the point where we we forget what it's all about, and that's not you, Nico. I mean, you did an amazing job. But here's a, here's a verse I memorized, much like Nico memorized that passage in Galatians five: "For all have sinned and 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 fallen." Short. We're getting there. Okay. A little slow on the uptake there, right? So here's the verse I memorized. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Right? Do you know it wasn't until I was in my mid-twenties that that verse that I had memorized shocked me. That verse horrified me that here I was, I, I had been a Christian ever since I was seven years old. And now here I am a Bible college graduate. And I'm revisiting this verse. Like Nico cited the verse from Galatians five for all have sinned. Dave steel. You have sinned and you have fallen short of the glory of God. And when you fall short of the glory of God, there is a way that seems right to a man But in the end, it leads to death. And I realized in that moment that I memorized the verse. But I I didn't fully understand what it meant to fall short of the glory of God. Because God created me and he created you so that we would glorify him. And when you fail to glorify him, you heap a great insult on the living God. Star, I picked that line up from one of your professors, Dan Fuller. You heap a great insult on the living God. You, 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 you drag his name into the gutter because you fail to glorify his name. God's purpose in creating the world was to showcase his glory. But the astounding thing now is that God, brace yourselves, God chooses to make his glory known through you. That's something else that that shocked me, probably in my mid-twenties, that all of a sudden I realized that God has created us for his glory. And now he uses imperfect, sinful, fallen people to to help showcase the glory of God in the world. And we're going to see some of the ways that we can do that. So we realize God's purpose in creating the world. We recognize God is the creator who formed us. And the third challenge is this. We must, we must respond properly to God by glorifying him. There are a few principles for glorifying God that I want to share with you. And I'm sure there are many more. But the two I want to propose that you embrace this morning are this. Number one. By spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in every area of life. That's how we glorify God. By spreading by we glorify God by spreading a passion for the supremacy of God. That's why first Peter two nine says that we proclaim the excellencies of Him. Here's a point of application. Are you doing that? Are you proclaiming the excellencies of Him? You say Pastor, you don't understand, I'm not a preacher. I'm a social worker. Or Pastor, you don't understand, I'm not a preacher. I'm a pharmacist. Or you don't understand, I'm a, I'm a janitor. I'm a teacher. I'm a lawyer. I'm a doctor. I work in the mill. I work at the school. I'm a gardener. I'm a housewife. I'm not a preacher. You know what the Word of God says? Yes, you are! Right? Welcome, preachers. We are called, 1 Peter 2 says that we are called to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of that dungeon, out of darkness, into his marvelous light. And so we glorify God by spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in every area of life. Number two, we glorify God by spreading a passion for the great worthiness of his name. I take this from Isaiah 43, 21, where once again, we see the people who I formed for myself, that they might declare. There's more preaching. There's more proclamation that they might declare my praise. And so please notice once again that that God created you and I for a purpose. He created you and I for himself it's one of the most important lessons that we learn from the pen of St. Augustine. O oh Lord, O oh Lord, thou hast created us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until we find our rest in you. John Piper says, in other words, to extend the pleasure that God has in his own name, he chooses a people to enjoy and praise and proclaim that name to all peoples to all people groups, to all nations. Now, the question that we want to come back to again and again and again is this. It's the question, so what? So what? What difference does the glory of God make? And since this is a study that focuses on the the doctrine that was rediscovered during the days of the Protestant Reformation, I want to begin 500 years ago. I want to be in 500 years ago and ask very quickly, how was the glory of God manifested during the days of the Protestant Reformation? And there are several things and each one of these could be multiple sermons, but I'll give them to you. Basically, first of all, they reformed marriage and family. These godly men and women helped to reform marriage and family. They reformed education in great and mighty ways. They reformed society. They reformed government. They reformed and really gave us what we know now as the Protestant work ethic. My friend Nate Pickowitz wrote a book just several weeks ago entitled Why We're Protestant. That's a book I knew I had to have. He said this over and above all else, the Reformation was an effort to move religion away from a man-centered scheme of self-justification and self-salvation to the God-glorifying, Christ-centered, spirit-empowered religion of the scriptures. Not to be outdone, John Calvin adds, we truly, we never truly glory in God until we have utterly discarded our own glory. The elect are justified by the Lord that they may glory in him and none else. Yes, Pastor, but that was 500 years ago. How does Soli Deo Gloria impact me today? How does Soli Deo Gloria impact you in everyday life? Let me leave you with a few areas. First of all, the glory of God impacts the way I live my life in general. Every step, every word, every action, every decision, whatever we do, 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, we do all to the glory of God. Proverbs 16.9 says, The heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Whatever we say, whatever we do, whenever we click on the mouse... Whenever we purchase a product in the marketplace of ideas, whatever we do, we do all to the glory of God. Number two, the glory of God impacts the way I spend my money. You say, where did that come from? The glory of God impacts the way I spend my money. You see, when I focus on God's glory... When I become enthralled with the glory of God, his kingdom priorities extinguish all the other things that have captured my attention. Does that make sense? When I become consumed with the glory of God, all those other things fade away. I remember my uncle Paul, a, a dear man who went to be with the Lord um, right before Jareen and I got married. He was, he was one of the funniest guys I ever knew. He was also one of the most serious theologians I ever knew. And he contracted cancer in his mid-50s. And I remember the last time they rolled him onto the wheelchair in front of his congregation, this massive church in Cupertino, California. And one thing Uncle Paul loved, he loved to have fun. When, when the Bible study was over, when systematic theology had, had come to a conclusion, he loved to play racquetball. He loved to go to the movies. He loved to go to the beach. He loved to go see the Giants play. I have no idea why. (laughs) He loved to go to football games. And I was sharing with a friend the other day that Uncle Paul is yelling and screaming his head off at this football game. And he has false teeth, you need to understand. And his uppers fell out and click, 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 click. (laughs) He went down to this lady and said, excuse me, I lost my teeth. Popped him back in. He just had a great time. But here's what he said just days before he went to be with the Lord. In a wheelchair, with oxygen, barely able to speak. He said, there was one time when the computer and my toys and my kites and all my hobbies were such, they brought me such pleasure. But now I've come to this point where I'm gazing at my Savior, who I will see very shortly. You see, everything came in perspective now. And so when you're you're focused on the kingdom, when you're focused on the kingdom, other things that have captured your attention grow strangely dim, as the hymn writer says. When our focus is on God's glory, I am not selfish with the resources that God has blessed me with. Rather, I share them. I'm not selfish with the resources God has blessed us with. Rather, we share them. Number three, the glory of God gives me reason to be filled with joy and hope. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access into faith, into this grace in which we stand. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Of God, My hope today is that every time you see that word glory now in the scriptures, you would remember today and hearken back to the day when we learned about Soledale Gloria. And number four, the glory of God motivates me to take the gospel to the nations. And at the risk of repeating a verse that I have likely quoted from this pulpit two dozen times, if not more, one of my favorite verses in the book of Acts, chapter 28, verse 28. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. You don't have to raise your hand, but do you struggle with evangelism? It's like, oh, man, what are they going to say? Are they going to reject me? What if they say no? What if they have a question I don't know the answer to? This verse gives me hope. Massive hope in evangelism because all those whom God has chosen in eternity past will listen to the message. The gospel reminds us that the glory of God and our everlasting joy are not at odds. One writer says the exhibition of God's glory and the deepest joy of human souls are one thing. You see, glory and joy are not at odds. They're one thing. It's one of the greatest lessons you can ever learn in the Christian life. And so I ask as we close, are you glorifying God with your life? The first and most important way to glorify God is, is to come to the foot of the cross and to admit to God that you're a sinner and to call upon the name of the Lord to be saved, to receive the salvation which is free for the asking. And so have you trusted him today? Have you turned from your sin? Have you treasured him? And does the glory of God motivate your every decision? Does the glory of God motivate your every action? Does the glory of God fuel all of your resolve? When I was in high school, my passion was the game of tennis. Most of my free time was spent on the tennis court or reading tennis magazines or watching tennis on TV. I loved, and I still love, but in high school, that was my passion. And I loved it when my friends and family members would come and support me by watching my matches on the tennis court. And it was probably about the time I was a junior, maybe even a senior, all of a sudden I had this thought, How would my play on the court be impacted if Jesus Christ stood up and put his hands on the fence? And so from that point on, every tennis match I played, I imagined, bear with me here, I imagined that Jesus came. I didn't have to imagine it. He came because Jesus is omnipresent. And guess what effect it had on my game? I became more aggressive. I had more energy. I had more passion. I had more resolve. I loved my opponents way more than I did prior. And when I shook their hand, even when I lost, it was a pleasure to shake their hand and to become friends with that competitor. Is we have to ask ourselves, if if Jesus showed up at our job, if Jesus showed up, on the football field or the basketball court or the baseball diamond or the tennis court, how would it influence our actions? I became a better tennis player because I wanted his glory to be revealed on the court through a a sinning, fallible, messed up high school student. And God accomplished a great work in that respect. Some of you are familiar with the great Dutch theologian, Abraham Kuyper. And in a moment of sheer brilliance, Kuiper uttered these words. He says, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. He looks at all of you and he says, mine. He looks at Everson and Nooksack and Sumas and Linden and Bellingham and he says, mine. He looks at liberal Seattle and says, you're mine too. He looks at the nations and he says, mine. He looks at the mountains, mine. At the animals, at the riches in the world. Everything looks, he says, it's all mine. Where does the glory of God need to be revealed in your life? My heart is that Solidale Gloria, that it would be the banner that, that flies high over your life and over your family and over your home, So you would say, oh God, let your glory be over all of the earth. Soli Deo Gloria. To God alone be the glory. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we have become reacquainted with the the purpose uh, of our creation. With the purpose of the creation of the cosmos. Namely, that, that your glory would spread throughout all the earth. And God, while we have become uh, acquainted with these very intense theological realities, we're also confronted on a a practical and a personal level. We have been called and challenged in your word to glorify the living God. Whatever we do, whether we eat or drink, we do all to the glory of God. Father, I'm just reminded this morning of the, the beauty and the majesty of the gospel. I'm reminded that all have sinned and fallen short of your glory. And I thank you for sending the Lord Jesus Christ to be the final payment for the sins of everyone who would ever believe as they turn from their sin and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, giving them a new ability to glorify the God of the universe. And so I pray that as we as we contemplate these things, that you would move us to action. Move us to action in our community. Move us to action among the nations. Move us to action here in our church family, all because we desire your glory to spread throughout all the earth. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.